founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Anthony Nitsos, the founder of SaaS Gurus. With an education background from numerous universities and multiple master's degrees to go with it, Anthony took his years of experience in finance and accounting and founded SaaS Gurus in 2020. SaaS Gurus is a state-of-the-art finance and admin ecosystem for B2B SaaS companies that addresses the deepest pain point of actually setting everything up properly the first time around for founders and CFOs alike. The biggest thing that sets SaaS gurus apart is that they architect a company's best case solution and actively transfer that knowledge during the build so each company and team becomes SaaS gurus of their own ecosystem rather than needing to rely on outsiders for help all the time. They are not just some academy that tells you what to do and leaves you to figure out the how. Instead, they are demystifying the entire process. Here to share his journey is Anthony. So Anthony, my new friend, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to it. I am as well. So we took our humble stab at understanding a little bit about you and what you do, but in your own words, how'd this company come to be? You know, it it was really something that came about probably most clearly within the last year or two, but really kind of started back in pretty much right around when COVID started, strangely enough. Um, I had been doing the fractional CFO controller type of work for probably since 2006. And there's a long history before that of how I got into that. Um, but this really came to fruition right around that January, February timeframe of 2020 and has really taken off in the last year in particular. Uh, the, only, the only thing I would say about the intro is that it's not a system that we sell. It is a methodology. Mm. So we have tech stack that we've used that we know works great. We have best practice processes that we have refined over the years that are specific to the niche that we serve. And that's what we really bring in is that um, we're not here to invent things and fix things on our time. We, on your time, we already know how to do it. We're going to come in and fix it. And then you're going to have it to run. And then we can focus on the fun stuff, which is finance. Love it. So in 2020, you said that's when kind of years of experience and, I, and, and the building of this idea came into fruition. What instigated it? Why do you think that was the time that it really came together for you? Well, so I had been doing, I've been working with SaaS companies, you know, in particular since 2007, but really working with all kinds of customers in terms of solving their back office, finance, accounting, you know, pains and, and, and problems, mostly around, you know, do I have the right numbers? Do I know where I'm going? Do I know where I've been? You know, do I have a good cash forecast? So I know, you know, whether I'm going to run into trouble or not. Do I have the numbers my board and my investors want to hear and know? And, you know, there are a lot of resources out there that provide, here's what you should do. But as you mentioned, they don't really step you through exactly how to set up QuickBooks or how to set up Salesforce or sure. how do you actually go in and set up, you know, these systems uh, to work and a budget that actually makes sense that you can actually get a cash forecast out of. Because as a professor of mine liked to opine back in the day, he says, you can't spend net income, you can only spend cash, right? And so... Are, we're very much focused on, in particular, the recurring revenue sector of the economy, particularly software, so what's called SaaS. 
Um, but recurring revenue occurs in all sorts of places, memberships. You know, there are a lot of organizations out there where you have prepaid memberships or you have a prepaid subscription of some time that's some type that may be content delivered. So it's really what we call SaaS is really now more along the lines of recurring revenue, whatever form it's in. Um, but we spoke, we focus specifically on SaaS, usually B2B, um, sometimes B2B2C um, and B2C directly. And almost inevitably, some sort of venture capital or other backed type of company that's, you know, getting its really, you know, trying to get market traction and get out there and get revenue growing fast. And so, you know, our experience, mine in particular with rapidly growing companies and scaling them, you know, is part of the reason why I looked at that and said, you know, there's an opportunity here. There are a lot of fractional CFOs out there, but most of what they're doing is accounting. It's not finance. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for with the, the incredible advancement in tools and automation of automating a lot of the, you know, back office functions so that numbers are produced without you having to chase them. Um, and that ultimately all makes everybody's job easier, which makes them happier. Because one thing you don't want as an executive is to be sitting there floundering, wondering whether the information you're getting is correct. Um, and when you're Working in that kind of an environment, your stress goes way up. You're not as happy. You begin to worry about things and lose sleep. And so a lot of our model is built on making sure that our customers are delighted with what we do, not just satisfied, because when they're delighted, they're happy. And when they're happy, they and their folks are working better and their companies, you know, will reap benefits from that. I love that. Now, as someone who is not versed in any of the, what we're talking about, the back office, finance. Luckily, my fa my co-founder handles most of that. I'm going to use this as a learning opportunity for me. You said what you see is that many CFOs are acting more at, in accounting than they are in finance. I don't know what the difference in that is. What do you mean when you say that? Okay. So I, do you ever see the movie Blues Brothers with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd way back when? Do you remember uh -huh. when they walk into this honky-tonk and they ask, so what kind of music do you play here? And she says, oh, we have both kinds, country and Western. Yeah. And, and everybody <laughs>, laughs because it's all the same to them, right? And I find that when people ask me, so you do accounting and finance. Yeah, oh, that's all the same. No, it's not. It's not like country and Western. Accounting by its nature is rear, rear view mirror looking, right? Mm. It's accounting. It's counting what happened. Now, that's extremely important. Let's not, you know, diminish that in any way because knowing what your company has done financially in the past is a huge indicator of where it's going in the future. It's information that's critical to the organization, but it's settled law, if you will. It's happened. We know what it is. Um, and so everything up to what I consider to be the financial reporting phase of things is accounting. And even if it's an actual versus budget analysis, that's accounting. It's financial reporting. It's just financial reporting of a flavor. Finance is forward-looking. We look Got through it. the windshield of the car. We are anticipating cash positions. We are looking at when is investment going to be needed. We're looking at does this contract with a customer maximize the valuation of the company? We're looking at, do these terms and conditions actually make sense for the type of relationship that we're going to have with this particular client? Um, we're looking at insurance. Do you have the proper coverage of your insurance to make sure that, you know, you don't end up with what I call the extinction level event where something comes out of nowhere and you don't have the insurance to cover it and you're basically out of business, right? So 
finance by its nature is let's look out and anticipate. Accounting by its nature is let's look at what happened and analyze. That is and, very helpful. And so what, what I found was, you know, and, you know, I found myself doing this too, which was one of those things that takes, you know, uh, the guy inside to figure out well, there's a better way to do this, right? which is that most fractional CFO services out there, and there's a big business in fractional CFO because a lot of companies are too small, especially in the startup, to afford a full-time CFO. Let's face it, you know, we're expensive people. Um, but you also don't need that level of full-time support, but maybe you need it you know, an hour a week or a couple hours a week or something like that. What most fractional CFOs will come in and say, yeah, I'll take care of all that. And so what you're ending up doing is you're paying the CFO to do accounting because a lot of what the, his or her job is, is to produce those financial reports. It's the stuff afterwards, which is actually the fewer hours. Let's just be blunt. It's, you know, you have more hours in preparing the financial statements and getting all the reports done and everything presented and the KPIs put together and get all that ready. Maybe that's 50 to 80% of your CFO time. And then the remainder is actual finance. Well, I come from a process re-engineering background. I mean, back in my past, I was a Six Sigma black belt process re-engineer in automotive manufacturing for Japanese companies. And you want to talk about the people that are like the past masters of efficiency and designing processes. Um, you know, that training plus prior to that, you know, my experience where I was actually in medical school and I'm actually a medical school dropout. <laughs> um, proud, proud to say that, that John, that Michael Crichton and I of Jurassic Park fame share something in common. We're both med school dropouts. Beauty um, school dropout. That's yeah. what my, where my mind went to. So, but that science training, that process training, that systems integration training from, you know, studying the human body translated a hundred percent into manufacturing. Cause it was really about the same thing. And so off I took into a career that had nothing to do with finance and accounting in the beginning but had everything to do with process optimization and flow and making sure that whether you're making a widget or you're creating a, an electronic record, they're all subject to the same quality processes. They're all subject to the same optimization rules. And for me, accounting is, a. am gonna get hate mail for this. Accounting is about as exciting as watching bricks dry. Okay, I'm sorry. It's not something that I get up in the morning and say, damn, I really want to tr crunch some more numbers. That's what, yes. no, I want, I want a robot to give me the numbers that I have programmed it to give me so that I can interpret and interact with the people and say, okay, here's what we do with this information. So our model is all about come in, make this finance and you know, a stakeholder admin ecosystem as automated as possible. And from that, use that to make it really low cost to deliver so that you're not spending your precious cash on accounting and accounting functions. And then really focus the contract and the support on what you need as a financial expert, which is, gee, do we, do we need to register to do taxes in this state? You know, or does, is this contract broken out between you know, software and services correct? Um, or you know, all sorts of range of questions that are finance nature and also kind of general business nature, just having somebody who's been there and done, you know, somebody who knows HR, somebody who knows insurance, somebody who knows that back office environment really well to say, hey, you know, if we're putting a, this was a great example, we want to put together a benefits package for our people that keeps them on board. How do we structure that? 
Well, that's a financial, that is by far a very much a financial decision-making process because you're going to look at, you know, Blue Cross plans or United Health plans. You're going to look at, do we do HSA? Do we do FSA? Do we do disability? You know, do we do home office stipends? You know, what, what's, oh, and by the way, what's the cost of all this and how does it impact our cash flow? Can we afford to do that? Can we afford not to do that? That's to me is interesting. That's so, fun. That's that's helping companies run better. So that's so who's answering those questions in that scenario? Are are people from SaaS Gurus answering that, yeah. or are you? Yes. yes? So yes. you guys are helping set up systems and processes that are doing a lot of the accounting, the rear view mirror stuff mm -hmm. for that customer, somewhat automatically, or at least, yep. like you said, not manually chasing things down and spending a bunch of time there. And then are they are you acting then at that point as a, almost a consultant? helping yep. them with those specific questions? We become the true fractional CFO at that point because we're looking at finance and not accounting. Um, we, we make sure accounting is taken care of. We make What we love to do is if you have somebody internal that maybe they just don't know SAS. We've had many en en engagements where say there's a controller on um, site or a manager of accounting um, that they just, they're really good workers. We're great. We love them, but we really need more SAS orientation out of our, you know, our resources. Can you help us not just build our systems, but make sure our people know how to do it? Great. Love it. Because what you want is from me or from somebody senior on my team is, okay, if we're going to go into a, a, a raise, are we going into, you know, what's our pre-money valuation that we're going in with? What are we asking for? What's our dilution going to look like? So that all leads to, you know, pricing of the, the preferred stock. And do we offer warrants and how do we top up the option plan? That's finance. That's stuff where you need somebody who has been there and done it to answer questions. And so that's what we do. And we work, you know, usually on a retainer basis at that point, because, you know, one, I hate tracking hours. Who loves that? Right. Um, and, and a lot of our clients put us on their Slack or they have us on their teams so that they can reach us instantly with questions. Um, and so that's, that's really our differentiator is we are very SaaS specific. We're very big on automating processes and we want to focus on the fun stuff and make you happier in the process so that your people are happier. And then they love coming to work and not having to grind their teeth because they don't have the right information. Uh, I love it. it. makes total sense. I want to go back, uh, to something interesting you said, which was your experience in the automotive industry and in the, in the Japanese automotive industry, which is legendary for some of its processes and uh, things like that. And just, I'm curious, what were any major insights that you gleamed that you think might be unique to having been in that kind of culture? So that was a, you know, a fascinating story adventure in and of itself. I had been doing some things for a while in ERP, which if you're familiar with ERP, things like NetSuite, Intact, if you've heard SAP or JD Edwards, these big computer systems that integrate the entire organization from stem to stern. I had been doing a lot of work in that space in the late 90s, especially as everybody was panicking and they were buying these systems because they, of Y2K. They thought their, you know, their native code was going to blow up as soon as the year 2000 came along. And of course, we all know what really happened in the end was a wet firecracker. But at that point, everybody and their you know, brother and sister were buying these you know, ERP systems. So I had, I had been in that space doing a lot of that work at that point and could see the handwriting on the wall that this was going to come to an end because as soon as Y2K came along, who's going to buy a new piece of software because they've either already bought it or they failed 
or they fixed it internally, right? There wasn't going to be a lot of business. And so uh, a completely unrelated story, I actually had gone and studied and um, learned Japanese because having grown up in Michigan and having watched the Japanese basically take over the automotive industry, um, I really wanted to know how they did it, right? And I had a unique opportunity to go live there and actually take University of Michigan College credit to learn how to speak Japanese and wow. learn their culture and learn their history in Japan, right? And in, and in an area of Japan that was really old and ancient. So there was like lots of like, you could take your Japanese art history and go see it. It was down the road, right? That kind of stuff or hop on the train. So in doing so, I really understood having lived there and then later on going to work for a Japanese company that their attitude towards quality and their attitude towards customers was very different from the United States that I had grown up with, which is, you know, the United States manufacturers at that time was kind of like field of dreams. If we build it, you will buy it. Whereas the Japanese were like, tell us what you want us to build and we will build it for you. Interesting. And by the way, we're going to build it in a way where it's beautiful. It's perfect. It works the way you want it. You, it doesn't Never break breaks. down. It doesn't break down. And the way to do that, they had developed various techniques, but strangely enough, they had developed techniques that were developed by an American. His name was Edward Demings. And he was the mastermind of quality for the entire Japanese manufacturing sector and had been brought in by um, uh, General MacArthur at the end of World War II to really rebuild the Japanese economy in a way that made it, you know, so it could stand on its own because frankly it had been bombed out of existence, right? There was very mm. little left in Japan and MacArthur comes in and, you know, people are starving. They don't have jobs and all these warriors are returning from overseas because they had lost. They needed work. And he called on his friend, Edward Deming to say, help us build the Japanese economy in a way that, you know, achieves all this. And they did. And so when you, at the time, you know, and still to this day, when you think of J Japanese, you tend to think of quality right alongside of it. A lot of that was because their culture really took to the idea of these quality ideas that Demings had developed and said, we are going to use this to take over the world. And they did. Okay. They did. They came out, their cars beat the living pay daylights out of anything the Americans were doing. When the oil crises hit in the 1970s, their cars were there. They ran. We all joked at first, what do you mean Honda cars? They make road and motorcycles. We weren't laughing two years later when all the automotive companies were shutting down their production lines because they weren't selling enough product because the Japanese were. And it went on from there. So I got into that culture when I studied them and then went on and worked in a Japanese company. And in this case here, it was a company that was originally English that had been bought by the Japanese. The president hired me in because I spoke the language. I knew ERP systems and I knew how to integrate systems. And they, were gonna, they had contracts on the books to grow revenue by 10 times in the next three years. So they were going to scale from five to $50 million in three years. Mm. And they needed all the systems and everything put into place. So essentially what happened was I came in as the controller. They brought me into a 70,000 square foot empty warehouse and said, you have control of every electron that doesn't drive a production machine. Make sure that you don't add any headcount to your accounting functions. 
So whoever you had at 5 million, you, those were the same people you needed to run everything at 50 million. You, Anthony, figure out how to make all this happen. Wow. So that was my mission. And my mission was to automate all of the data flows through the systems using Japanese quality techniques, only applying them to information in a way that in the end, we did exactly that. I had in the beginning myself and two part-time people. In the end, I had myself and two, one full-time and one part-time person. So I did expand by one half of a headcount. But we were running a $5 million operation on those people. And then the same three people, we were running a $50 million operation. All the financial accounting, all the labor tracking, all the productivity numbers, all of the profitability numbers per product, material and labor, all of that flowing through a system that was state-of-the-art back then was barcodes. So all the employees walked around with barcodes on their badges and all the workstations had barcode readers and scanners and all of the material and all the labor was flowing into a system. And from there it was just managing electrons. I'm so curious when one, that's a fascinating piece of history of, uh, that I had no idea about even what, what MacArthur did and the influence in the Japanese culture, helping rebuild that is, is, is fascinating. But, um, what I would assume is if you're going to make quality, the focus, you know, in comparison to the American way of building, you know, vehicles and that kind of thing, that it would lead to expensive vehicles. Yet we know that Honda and Toyota have remained a very cost affordable kind of vehicle. So was it when you mentioned the quality practices that you used to, you know, implement to the information side that you were doing, how did they do that? How did they achieve incredible quality without the, you know, the cost getting astronomical because of the focus on quality. Does that, does that question make sense? It's absolutely a pertinent question. And it's a dead on question. It's like, so how did they do it? Right? Yeah. So there are a couple of principles that they followed to the, you know, to the, <laughs> to the death, if you will. Number one is when you take a look at controlling quality, the level of control and the cost of that control is what you really want to leverage. So let's do an example. If I don't make a bad part from the get-go, I don't have to worry about detecting it, so I don't have an inspection, and I don't have to worry about it getting to my customer, so I don't have a recovery, right? So there's a hierarchy of controls, and the three levels are preventive, detective, and corrective. So the preventive control is the control that makes sure that escapes don't happen, quality escapes don't happen. And so they manufacture their processes, both their machine and people processes, in a way that they use the term pokeyoke. You might have heard of that. The, the actual Japanese is you know, literally translate, translates as idiot can't do, or dummy, <laughs> dummy, dummy can't do, so dummy proofing. So they would set up their production lines with you know, 5Sing their tools to make sure that all the tools that were needed were to hand. They're always in the same spot. The process always runs the same way. They analyze the heck out of it to make sure it's producing. So what they do is they prevent occurrences of quality from happening. That's number one. Now, there are some times where you still have to have an inspections, but they would focus on those inspections as evils that needed to be stamped out. Right, So they were very much focused on prevention. That's number one. So principle number one. Principle number two is whoever creates the product is in the best position to control its quality, right? 
Sounds simple, right? It sounds like, well, that's kind of a duh, but the, the truth of the matter is the person who's standing there, whether they're making an invoice or they're making a fuel line, is the person who is best positioned to make sure that that information goes in correctly the first time. And so that single creation point where you create it once and then you add to it as it goes by works in information just as well. I can't tell you how many customers I've walked into. Their CRM has a customer list. Their accounting has a customer list. Their customer support has a customer list. And they're not all the same. Yep. And that's a fundamental, the Japanese would go screaming in the other direction or not. They wouldn't go screaming because they would never scream at anything. They would just tut tut, <laughs> look at you with a stony face and then say, we're going to fix it. Um, and so that's what we do, right? So we make sure like your quote to cash is all in one series of flows of systems so that the information for the customer is entered once and it's added to as it goes through the process. And the people that are entering it, we want to make those as few as possible. So we want automated data entry. And if you have to enter something in, we make sure that it's entered only once and that that person knows exactly what they should be entering in what fields to make sure that every downstream process that relies on it has what it needs without having to go back and ask for it. Uh, that is brilliant. I, I would say on that second point, you know, I, I see that in my own business right now where there's, if you were to step back a little bit, you'd see there's unnecessary variables that mm -hmm. if you have a customer list here and a customer list here and a customer list here, and they're not the same, you've created all these extra variables, right? You have. So you've made complexity out of something that didn't need to be complex and complex things can break or there can be dropped balls, missed, you know, details or at least slow, right? And having to go consult this list and match it and consult with this list mm -hmm. and all of that you're saying in a sense is a cost that they were avoiding. It it's absolutely, it's a cost in, there's a, there's mostly soft cost, but there's also direct cost. So the cost is you have to interrupt whatever process it is that you're trying to get done to stop and ask for information from further upstream that if it had been collected properly could have taken care of it. Right. Yeah. Same thing happens in a quality inspection point in a, in a production line. Oh, this product doesn't follow, doesn't have the right characteristic. You now have to stop the process, go back, correct it, bring it forward. You don't want to do that at all, um, especially in manufacturing where your margins are razor thin. In software, your margins are a lot thicker, but they could be even thicker still because rather than you as the CEO wasting time to go back and say, so what is the actual contact on this account or accounting having to go back and say, who do we actually send the bill to? I can give you all sorts of examples. Um, where you, somebody in your organization has to stop what they're doing. We call that a process interrupt and go back and get the particular quality element that they need to proceed. So this happens all the time. And what, so the, the, the direct cost is your wasted, you know, resource, which is sitting there that you're paying, you know, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever it happens to be is wasting their time, mm. having to go chase something that should have been provided to them. So that, that to me is it's an opportunity cost, but it's a direct cost because you're paying that resource to do X and they're not doing X, they're doing Y and they're wasting their time on Y. Non-value added, NVA is the term, non-value added activity. The other way where it costs the organization is in morale. If you're constantly having to scramble for what you need to know in order to do your job, you're not going to be all that happy about it. Right. And if you think people are withholding information, and usually what happens is like, well, if such and so forth would just give me 
and they're not, and they're bad people for it, right? You know, you kind of get into that mental trap of they're doing it to you, right. not because they themselves are too busy and slammed because they may be chasing their own data, but it's, you know, it kind of builds on itself. And so one of the things, you know, we, we like to hear when we come in is, you know, our people are happier because they have what they need. Hmm. And so for us, this goes back now to my medical school training. Ultimately, I am a caregiver. I'm here to cure my patient. And part of the cure of a business is to make the people working in it happier with what they're doing, or at least to remove barricades, you know, remove roadblocks, things that are getting in their way. I mean, there are certain things that you can control and certain you can't, you know, so culture being one of them, um, you have limited influence, but you can make the information flow be as easy as possible. Whether you're an executive reviewing KPIs or you're an accounts receivable person reviewing your AR profile and, you know, who's going into collections, all of that information basically comes from and should come from the same source. Yeah. And if it's all done consistently and follows these quality, you know, preventive for de before detection and single point of data entry, those two philosophies alone cure so many of the problems. Mm. And so you end up with more efficiency. You're having better utilization of your resources. So there's not the direct opportunity cost. And then people are just generally happier doing what they're doing because they're not sitting there afraid and that's usually what it is. They're afraid that they're missing something yeah. or they're afraid they're not going to finish something because they have to go do this instead, which is not really what they want to be doing. So there are a lot of ways in which, you know, doing this right impacts the organization positively. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm fascinated in this stuff from an intellectual perspective, but also from a, a real world, the, the real world perspective for me is time and money are tight like and running a business, having demands of a family, having demands of customers, having demands of the business itself, that I'm always looking for ways to save either time or money. And this type of approach seems to do both where we're not having a waste of energy, right? Like at the end of the mm -hmm. day, you're exhausted. I want to make sure that exhaustion was worth something. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, good exhaustion. That it moved like, man, we yeah. got momentum. We move things forward yeah, instead of exactly. like, I spent half of my energy just trying to catch up or just trying to track things down. And, mm -hmm. and you're able to save people a lot of that. And I want to tell you two stories to see if you resonate with them that almost act as like metaphors with this one is the medical community. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a doctor and he was actually asking my advice on how to help them with some practices and things. But I was like, give me a background of what the medical industry has been through and you know, ways it sought to improve quality and things like that. And he mentioned uh, one of the big revolutions was the introduction to a, a, of a checklist uh, when it came to like, um, I guess, trauma response. So mm -hmm. somebody comes in with a, you know, bleeding leg or a gunshot wound. He said, you know, they used to chase the symptom. Like they would come in and they would see that the leg is bleeding and go there and start working on the leg. But he's like, man, there's a hierarchy to things that are going wrong and how important they are. So he said, you may be distracted by the blood coming out of that person's leg, but you didn't know that their airway was blocked. And, you know, you can only go 30 seconds with your airway being blocked before you're dead. And mm -hmm. so we need to make sure your airway is not blocked before we go to the bleeding because you can bleed for three minutes before you're dead. And so they had literally an ABC checklist of airway, mm -hmm. breathing, whatever. And they always follow that. And he said, just following that simple checklist kept us from missing like the non-obvious thing that was more deadly than the obvious thing. And I was like, wow, that is, I could see how that'd be revolutionary, right? Just following mm -hmm. a simple checklist, like you're talking about that process up to the beginning, that initial observation of the patient 
allows you to save mistakes that would be downstream from that. Mm-hmm. The second thing it makes me think of, and I, I wish I could remember this kid's name. He's probably not a kid anymore, but he's Elon Musk level brilliance. You know, he was in his teenage years. There's a whole TED talk from him where he decided he wanted to try to tackle some global problems. And he felt like the one that no one was talking about was like pollution in the ocean and things like that. And so he's like, all right, the ocean's huge. That's a lot of ground to cover. I wonder if there's any concentrations of pollution or of concentrations of trash and debris. Sure enough, he found that there's these giant, like almost like land masses in the ocean because of the currents that they would all pool together in certain areas. Yeah. And so he started there. He was like, well, that's easy. It's if 80% of the trash is all floating in very similar pockets, I can focus there instead of trying to cover the whole oceans. Then later he said, well, I wonder where these are coming from. And he found that there was only like six rivers around the world that dealt with like 80% of the trash that was coming into the ocean. So he's going upstream from the problem, right? And he's like, all right, well, now I'm going to focus my effort on those six rivers. And I'm going to start putting things in those rivers that'll catch trash before it ever gets to the ocean. Then he realized upriver from that, there was only a few cities connected to each of these rivers that were the major contributors to the pollutants. And so he said, all right, I'm going to go there and figure out why the heck they're dumping so much trash in their rivers that are leading to the bigger rivers that are leading to the oceans. And he started actually making a difference there in those cities and therefore eliminating a lot of even needs for the stuff he'd created downstream. And that makes me think of what you were talking about with the prevention versus the correction and what was the third one? Prevention, correction? Prevec- prevention, detection, detection, correction. correction. Right? And that's exact. And, and the philosophy behind that, and he did it without using the you you did it without using the word, is a principle called five whys. That's what I was going to ask you about next. I wanted you to, to elaborate because I've heard Jim Collins mention it briefly, but I would yeah. like to hear from you. So five whys is a double-edged, extremely effective, and can also be devastating tool. And here's why it can be both. It can be extremely effective in that, okay, what, why is there so much, um, you know, here's the garbage patch. I come, I come to the ocean, there's the garbage patch. Why is this garbage patch here? It's coming from the rivers. Why is it coming from the rivers? It's coming from the cities. Why is it coming from the cities, right? So ultimately what he was doing is he was going up the chain of whys to get to the root cause. And that is exactly what you said. When I was in medical school, one of the things that they tried to drill into us, and at that time, the culture was very much in the opposite direction, was hmm. treat the root cause, not the symptom. And a lot of our medical society right now and our medical industry is built on treating symptoms and not root causes. Take a pill, all right? Do whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. But in medicine, it's just as big a miss in medicine as it is in business to not go after the root cause. And the way you do that is you can do that with the five whys, but when you do that inside of an organization, you have to be very careful because why can come across as accusatory. Mm. And suddenly what happens is you bring people's spines and egos into it. Well, why did that happen? Well, because of blah, blah, blah. And suddenly they're mad at you because you had the temerity of asking that question. So that's why I say the five whys technique can be both devastatingly effective and devastating because if you do it, politically nicely and you know you soften the questions you you know this is you know i'm not going to give you these specific examples because you have to be in the moment but getting the information out as to well so why did that happen yeah and can you tell me more about what caused that and suddenly now they start opening up and you go right up that chain and you say for example why are so many of our accounts receivable past due well 
they're past due because we don't have the right email address or we're not sending it to the right address. Okay. Well, on those that you're sending it to the right address, why are those not getting paid? Well, because they, are just a, they needed a purchase order and they didn't give it to us. Why didn't we get that purchase order? Oh, because it's not on our sales order form to ask whether the customer requires a purchase order. And suddenly you start to uncover the fact that the reason why you're cash crunched is because your sales team isn't getting the purchase orders up front and poor accounting is sitting there chasing dollars after you've already started implementing the client, after you're already out money. And, you know, and if you're dealing with a large organization that pays like on net 60 and net 90, you're starting way behind the curve to begin with. Yeah. And then, you know, so that's a, that's a really good real world example of going up that Y chain to get to the root cause to fix that because you're exactly right. You're preventing the error from occurring. You're preventing the mistake from occurring in the first place. And so all those downstream processes and impacts disappear. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something really, I'm so glad you're obviously very emotionally intelligent to, to notice that, but the question why, depending on the context or the hearer, the person who's hearing that, the context they believe it's in, can mm -hmm. either create a defense mechanism where now you might not get to the truth because all they're trying to do is deflect blame that they think is about to be placed on them yep. versus something that is simply curious. Like one is seeking to identify and solve a problem. The other is looking to pass blame on someone. And right. so how do we go about creating a culture or a conversation where when we ask why that we're on the same wavelength, I'm not mm -hmm. looking to be mad at somebody and trying to figure out who to be mad at or to put blame on someone. We're just simply trying to eliminate inefficiencies or get better as a company or whatever. So let's be as transparent as possible. Let's go through layers of why to get to the issue. So two things come to mind on that. One, you can never be a profit in your own backyard, right? So if you're the outside consultant coming in, you have no skin in the game. You have no history with anybody. You have no scores to settle, nor do you, nor are you part of somebody's score to be settled. Mm. You have the opportunity to come in with that, that blank slate and say, okay, help me understand why this is occurring. Okay. And you use your people skills to do that. So that's number one that being able to come in there as the outsider to do that. So there is, there is a value in that because you're bringing somebody in. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with somebody and say, so can, can you tell me why this is such a problem? And they'll go off or like, well, Jim in accounting does blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, okay. And you, then you go to Jim and say, hey, Jim, I, you know, I'd like to understand more. Not she said, I'd like to mm. understand more. So, so there's, you know, there's verbal techniques. The other big factor is the culture itself that you're going into, if it's a blame-based culture, you're probably already going up a hill that's going to be really hard to climb. Yeah, yeah. If you're in a company that's collaborative by nature and it's, you know, people are open and they're trying, you know, everybody's really trying hard, then it's going to be a lot easier to get that stuff out. But the more, you know, established the organization is or the process, well, that's the way we've been all, that's the way we've always done it. That's my favorite answer. Oh, we've always done it that way. <laughs> When I hear that one, all my lights light up because it's like, ooh, I know there's an opportunity here because that process was probably put into place, you know, 10 years ago or who knows, three years ago or even two months ago. And the situation has changed. Yeah. The world evolves. The business evolves. The world around it evolves. The requirements evolve. And so, you know, it's, it's not just, and that's the other thing, a process that works well today may not work well in the future. Yeah. 
Another question that you should always ask yourself when you're putting a process together is add a zero to the number of, pro of, of items that are going through and does it still work? Hmm. You know, if you're processing 10 invoices today, can this system that you've set up handle a hundred? Can it handle a thousand? Wow. Can it handle a million? Now, if you're in a company that's having that kind of, we call it the hockey stick growth, but in mathematics, it's called logarithmic scaling. You know, the logarithmic scale is one that goes up by factors of 10 at each stage. Um, you're like you know, the Richter scale for earthquakes. A, you know, a seven, a seven Richter scale is not one more than six. It's like 30 times or something. I don't know exactly what it's like. Huh. Way more powerful. It's a logarithmic scale. Processes internal to organizations that are anticipating scaling must anticipate logarithmic growth in their design or you will have failure. Gotcha. So playing that game is, is helping you going ahead and anticipating if there are going to be any breakdowns uh, coming by mm -hmm. saying, well, it handles 10, but at 100, I can already see where the complications would be. Well, then that's probably not a good solution if we're planning on getting to 100 within a short right. period of time, right? And then exactly. And then usually at that point, what will happen is the discussion will start getting into, so how do we make this most efficient? Because usually when you add that zero and it says that's not going to break, it's because we have to throw bodies at fixing whatever it is that needs to be fixed. Okay, well, we can't do that because it's non-scalable because we're going to have to add 10 people to that. Well, that's not going to work. It'll kill our profitability. It'll you know destroy gross margin, whatever it happens to be. Okay, so how do we make that more efficient? And you, you, know, you get people involved in that because in the end, everybody wants their job to be easier. Yeah. Right? So there we go. Well, you said something earlier that I just want to highlight because as a coach, I've literally said this before. It's one of my favorite questions, which is help me understand. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you, you use that language verbatim. And I think that immediately helps the person that you're asking that question to be in the frame of mind you'd like them to be in. Mm -hmm. Help me understand. Help me understand mm -hmm. how this happened. It's so much different than why did this go this way, right? Mm -hmm. Why are you a problem? Help me understand why you feel like it's a challenge here to do yeah. your job, right? Yeah, exactly. And that is so, so brilliant. Here's my question, though, in playing out the five questions, what I get afraid of, and this is because I'm a novice in this framework, right? And so you, this is why I want to ask you this, where I would get afraid in trying to implement the idea of five questions, you know, five layers deep of the why, is what if the first answer is actually not the right answer? You know, that you ask someone, hey, why, you know, why did this happen? And their first blink of, well, it happened because of this. And that's the answer to question number one mm -hmm. might not be the real, might not be the real rabbit to chase. And we mm -hmm. start going from there. Does that make sense? Like we're following yeah, the wrong I rabbit sure down the wrong trail. So one of two things will happen. And there's a way to, there's a way to kind of mitigate that and prevent that. But if you, let's say you follow that wrong rabbit, well, your problem isn't going to go away. As a matter of fact, it'll probably get magnified. So you'll know immediately, oh, that didn't fix my problem. Mm. Therefore, that probably wasn't the root cause. The other one is triangulate. Don't just rely on one person. Sometimes you're limited because the employee, you have five person in company, right? And this is the only person that does it. Yeah. But yeah. usually that's also easier to fix because there are fewer people involved or fewer moving parts. But triangulate whatever questions you are asking. Make sure that you're not, you know, that you're, that you're getting a way to verify that that's correct. It could be in talking to other people. It could be looking at documents or processes, you know, really, you know, it kind of depends on the circumstance, but 
I would never usually don't because I go back to my science training is, which is ask three different people the same question and see, you know, an average of the results. I like that. So it's more of a scientific method approach in terms of, I don't yeah. expect the very first time we go through this process that it's always mm -hmm. going to lead to the right answer, but I am going to keep doing this process until the results show me we got the right answer. Right. And, and, you know, this comes up in Six Sigma, for example, in order to do Six Sigma, you need to be sampling. In order to be sampling, you need to understand statistical theory and how statistics work. And so there's this thing called the sample size, right? And an N of one is not a sample. A sample size of one is not a sample. It's an individual. In most, you know, this is getting a little geeky at this point. In most normally distributed populations, the mean, the average, can be determined with an N of 22. So I could have a population of a million people. If they're normally distributed, they follow that quite a normal bell curve. All I need to do is survey 22 of them at random. And whatever I'm trying to average, I'm going to be probably 90% accurate off of those 22 people. So you don't, the, the, answer, the answer is you don't need a lot of samples to get to the right answer. And you, you know, when you're dealing with a larger company, you can ask more people. When you're dealing with a smaller company, you have fewer to ask, but they're also probably more inclined to want you to fix their problem because they're tired of dealing with it. Yeah. Right. So it could, they could be giving you the wrong answer because they just themselves don't know, or they have their worldview and it's blinded them to, oh, this is really what's going on. And so you're getting it, but that's where your experience comes in and your ability as, you know, I've seen this, or I've been doing this for 15 years. Mm -hmm you know, to see, it's like, you know what, I, I don't think that's really what's going on here. Have you considered, mm. you know, then, then, then it gets into the, what about the possibility of it being X? Um, but it, there's, I'm not going to say it's totally art. There's a lot of science to it, you know, go into it, try and figure it out. But a lot of these problems, these crop up, you know, to kind of bring it back to, to, to the audience here, if, if you're just starting up, um, what you're doing now is you're preventing problems from growing later. And if you're already in this boat and you're dealing with these problems, it's a way to make your current lives easier and better. And more important, set you up for scaling if that's going to happen. Also, if you're looking at an event such as a transaction involving either being acquired or bringing in investment money, um, you're going to want to make sure that all your ducks are in a row because the company that's evaluating for your investment is evaluating you on your team. It's evaluating on your markets fit and your go-to-market strategy, but they're also determining whether or not your operation is run well. And you know, that what money they're giving you is going to be responsibly used and not wasted. And if they're acquiring you, that there is going to be minimal disruption to your operation because you've got it so well dialed in, there's not going to be this massive disruption as new systems are brought into place. Um, you know, and, and dis, you know, disruption it usually results in unhappy people and lower productivity. Totally makes sense. Well, I just looked up and saw what time it is. So for the, for honoring your time, I'm going to go ahead and transition us into the lightning round. Uh, I could keep talking to you about this for a long time. This is fascinating to me. So glad I looked at the clock. Didn't realize we were already at the top of the hour. Oh, wow. Um, five questions that we've asked every founder. First thing that comes to mind will satisfy. Uh, question number one, if you could ingrain just one message into your entire organization. So imagine it's like a billboard that your team passes by every day. What message would be on that billboard? We only want delighted customers. Love it. Love it. All right. Question two, 
What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And what was the worst? The best advice that I got was make sure that your people plan is in place. And the worst advice I ever got was don't worry about it. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. <laughs> I got to ask on that one. Why is that the worst advice? Because then your bridge is probably either not going to be built correctly or it's going to be in the wrong place or you're going to be in some crisis mode because now all of a sudden you have a massive problem on your hand and your only choice is to burn money to fix it. Mm, that makes sense. Number three, what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? Internally, because we're also, we're also professional services providers, is standardization is just as much, if not more, of a challenge in the services organization as it is in software or um, you know, manufacturing. It's probably yep. the, the most challenging environment in which to standardize because standardized leads to scaling and repeatabil repeatability leads to scaling, right? So standardizing things controls quality, make sure that the outputs are correct. That's, that's got to be number one. For me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I pointed to myself while you're saying that, cause I, I feel the same issue in my organization. We're in a professional services type business and, um, same worry for me. So I, I resonate with you on that one. Okay. Number four, what's your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Um, I would like to, uh, the BHAG for me is to turn this into AI. Hmm. Right. So there was a paper that was produced, um, I want to say about 15 years ago or 20 years ago in one of the big colleges in the, uh, in the UK, it was either Cambridge or Oxford, that was looking at automation trends and said that there were, you know, half of the, by 2050, half the jobs in the United States would be automated out of existence. And they ranked the ones that were most likely to go. And in the top 10 list was accounting, right? Wow. And I looked at that and I'm like, gee, I'm, I'm in accounting. <laughs> Actually, I was in the process of moving out of accounting into finance. And so to me, the BHAG is a lot of what we do that I told you about that back office automation. I know that this can be systematized in a way that's software based because it's rules based. A lot of what we do is based on rules. And so that basically lends itself to machine learning. Because when you have big sets of data and you have well-established rules, you can turn out a software program that will actually start to do what, it, what a human does, which is to make the decisions. So that to me is the BHAG, is that we take all of this knowledge and, and you know, we're trying to build that, that talked about that systematizing of the processes. That's exactly one of the reasons why we're doing it. Not just because it's great for our clients, um, in terms of quality, but because that's what could be potentially building the base for us to turn this into, you know, what essentially amounts to software. Really cool. That's awesome. Okay. Number five is our creative question. So we're going to play a game called back to the future. Imagine that you got a real life working DeLorean that could take you back to the future and you get to go back to your past. We're not there to change anything, but you do get to deliver a message to the younger version of you. When would you go back and what message or encouragement would you pass along to that younger version of yourself? That's so hard. You know, ultimately, I think the biggest challenges that I've faced is 
one that nobody's going to be surprised to hear, which is the imposter syndrome, right? Oh, which yeah. Is, and I think going back and telling my teenage self, just believe in yourself, dude, settle down, stop worrying, and just be comfortable in your own skin. That probably would have made a hell of a lot of my life a lot easier. Yeah, a, a, I'm still working I, on it. If I'd heard it and B, I actually lived by it, right? There's the, yeah. there's the two steps there. But, you know, because in the end, if you're going to go out, you know, we're, we're salesmen, right? CEOs sell their companies. They sell their brand. They sell their, you know, whatever it is. If you're not comfortable doing that, if you're not completely solidly into yourself, people will sense it. Yeah. They'll know something's off. And they're less likely to do business with you. Yeah. I saw this article. No, I guess it wasn't an article. It was a sketch uh, that was going around the internet, at least on my section of the internet. And it showed, you know, the stick figure of a person rolling a boulder up a hill. But on that stick figure's back was another boulder. And it had an arrow to it that said, your self-doubt. And it mm -hmm. said, how much easier would this be if you let that go? Like, what we're doing is already difficult enough, pushing this boulder up the hill. And you're making it so much more difficult on yourself by carrying this huge weight of self-doubt on your shoulders. And it just jumped out to me. You know, I still feel that. I still have to wrestle through layers of feeling like an imposter. So anytime you do something new, anytime you're stepping into a new arena or raising your rates or anything you're doing, you're like, oh God, am I going to be able to do this? And what if we fail and all that stuff? So uh, that is a well-timed message. I received that for sure. Awesome. Well, Anthony, this has been a pleasure. And before we part ways, I would love to know, is there a call to action for our audience, uh, for anyone listening that might be able to utilize your services? Yeah, absolutely. So we offer basically a free diagnostic and, and I'll sit down with you personally, if you want for 90 minutes, and we will do exactly like what a new physician does when you go in for your new patient evaluation, they do a review of systems and take a look at everything that you're doing that we put in our wheelhouse's expertise. And at the end of that, we'll tell you, hey, you know, there's opportunities here. Here's where they lie. Um, if you want to have us do it, here's, you know, we get into uh, here's how much it'll cost and what it would look like. But that gap analysis is free. Um, if you go to my website to uh, sasgurus, sas-gurus.com, um, you can also find me on LinkedIn, but get to the contact us page, send me a contact and I'll reach back out to you. Usually I'm pretty good within minutes to hours reaching back to folks and we'll set up a time to chat. Um, no pressure. I mean, I'm not there to sell you something you don't need. If your systems are already set up and you're just looking for somebody to look at them and say, Hey, we're great. Or gee, we're actually in more of a mess than we thought. Um, you know, either of those answers could be useful to you. Awesome. Well, Anthony, this has been a fantastic conversation. Your company is certainly providing massive value uh, in the marketplace. Fascinating to find out what you're doing. Also, I appreciate all the insight and wisdom on quality processes and things like that. So uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Drew. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.